How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, it's a thrill to have Dr. Phil Carey back on the broadcast. Just to remind you, if you're jumping into the podcast series right now, we're doing a series on church history. And before you yawn, uh, I want you to understand history is the current event of another time. Unfortunately, we may not have all had exciting history teachers and professors, but I am of the mind, and one of the reasons I'm so honored to have Phil back on the broadcast is I'm of the mind that America is in trouble in no small part because we don't know our history. I'm not going to read Dr. Carey's entire Vita CV, but for those that don't know him, he's a professor at Eastern University with a concentration on Augustine of Hippo. And I first uh, fell in love with him through the great courses, listening to, uh, I think I've purchased everything you teach on the great courses, Doc. And uh, he got his Doctor of Philosophy at Yale Divinity School under Nicholas Walterstorff. Nicholas Walterstorff, my dissertation advisor, yes. That's another interview for another time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's written a, a lot of books. Uh, three have been published by Oxford Press. Additionally, he lectures on the history of Christian theology as well as major figures in ecclesiastical history for the teaching company. And the books that we talked about was his book on anxiety, which I told him I wish I had written. And then this book, I just love, 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 The Meaning of Protestant Theology. Uh, Phil, thank you for – how long did that take you? I mean, beyond the 20 years of teaching when you started <laughs> writing that book. Oh, the the writing of the book probably took three or four years. The thinking of it, yeah. about 20. Yeah. 20. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, uh, as my friend Dave Ramsey says, yeah, we're an overnight success 25 years later. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yep. <laughs> well, let's jump into this. And I sent Phil, I won't show you, but I sent him about a, a Word document full of questions. And I said, which one of these are we going to talk about, Phil? So let me jump into this. First of all, just briefly. You mentioned talking about creeds, and I don't want to go down that too too deeply, but talk about the framework of a creed, Phil, and why that's important to understand history being documented at a particular time. Oh, creeds, yes. Well, I mean, technically what a creed is is a Christian confession, uh, and especially a confession of what the faith is. So some churches will have you reciting a creed every Sunday. Baptists tend not to do that. But if you're Episcopalian or Catholic or Lutheran or most Presbyterians, you'll recite the creed, and that's your statement of what your faith is. And the lovely thing about the Christian creeds is that they tend to focus simply on who God is and who Jesus is. They answer the who question. What is it you believe, Christian? And you answer in terms of who it is you believe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, so that's a creed, and then you can ex- kind of expand that you can talk about a Buddhist creed and so on. But properly speaking, it's, it's really only Christians who have creeds. Were, were they not typically out of a controversy or a problem? Yes, absolutely. Well, with one exception, this is an actually an interesting bit of history. So the earliest creed we have is, is the Apostles' Creed, which goes back to a, a creed used in Rome probably in the late 2nd, early 3rd century for baptisms. 
the creeds grew out of the baptisms because, of course, we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the structure of the ancient creeds. So here's the story. I mean, if you're getting baptized as an adult, you go into the water, and uh, the pastor asks you, do you believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth? And they dunk you. Well, first you say, I believe. Then they dunk you, right? And then you ask, you know, he asks, do you believe in God the Son, uh, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? And you say, I believe, and they dunk you again. And of course, then, then do you believe in the Holy Spirit? They dunk you again. Well, those creeds became more and more formal. Originally, they were just uh, sort of a, a pattern of words that people kind of memorized. Then they became written down, and then they developed in a bit. So, so that's the original formula of the creeds. They, they, every different community had their own slight variations, but they all had that Trinitarian shape, and they all, all were used in baptism. And then what happened is um, one uh, seriously wrong teacher in Alexandria in Virginia, a man named Arius, said, you know this stuff about Jesus, uh, the Son of God, being begotten from the Father? Well, that, that means that there was once when he was not, not, right? There was once when he didn't exist. And the Orthodox were saying, wait a minute, that doesn't look like my baptism, right? right? So they take a baptismal creed, they add a few things to make sure that they exclude that teaching and say, he's eternally begotten from the Father, or begotten before all ages, before all worlds, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not, not made. made. Right, indeed, begotten, not created. So fathers beget, right? Begetting is just what a father does with a son. Fathers beget, mothers conceive, babies are born. Well, this is a, an, an eternal begetting, and as a result, he is of one being with the father. Right? The son is of one being with the father. That's a non-biblical phrase that they added to a baptismal creed in, in order to say, just in case you're not clear, we're excluding this teaching of Arius. Right? Yeah. Is the son just as truly God as God the father? Yes, he's of the same divine being as God the Father. So when we say the Son of God is God, we mean the same divine being, not something lesser or lower. And just, just one last thing about that. Some people fuss about the fact that the word they added of one being, you know, homoousios, of one essence, was, was a Greek term that's not in the Bible. But the reason why that was needed is because these guys were all speaking Greek. And the original creeds, of course, were in probably Hebrew or Aramaic. Right. And if you wanted to be if you were a Jew, you know, like the 12 apostles or Mary, right, his mother. Right. How did you say Jesus is God? You didn't say Jesus is God because Caesar is God. There's dozens of gods. Right. Lots and lots of gods and lords, just as Paul says. So how do you say Jesus is God? You say Jesus is Lord. And you, if you're Jewish, you know that you're using you're talking about the name of God. You're talking about the name, the Lord God of Israel. Right. You're talking about the name without saying it because you don't say the name if you're Jewish. You say Lord instead. So when you say Jesus is Lord, in the Jewish context, you're saying he's God. But these are Gentiles. They're Greeks. 300 years later, they don't know this quite. So, so you need a Greek word that, that says the same thing. And that's what's going on in the Nicene Creed. You know, it's interesting. And, and again, we're in a, a deep, deep well that could go into a cavern. But when you think of so many of the creeds, Phil, and even today, modalism and uh, those who've abandoned Trinitarian doctrine, and you and I talked, I think, briefly about this in a prior podcast, what, what is it? Now, I know the, the answer is Satan, you know, but what is it about people that push against a Trinitarian Godhead? Because we have so many texts, yes, the word Trinity is not there, but we got texts that talk about, you know, one Lord, one Spirit, different effects, different gifts. I mean, Scripture is clear. Us, 
You know, I mean, there's so many things we could point to where a Trinitarian doctrine is taught. I argue that apart from a Trinitarian doctrine, you can't understand salvation because it requires the work of all those person, the one person Godhead, to affect our salvation. So all that prattling of mine, why do you think this is such an attacked doctrine issue? Jehovah, Jehovah's Witness, a God, right? I mean, we, we could right, go on yeah. and on and on with these cults that have a God or he was begotten. Yeah, therefore he was yeah. made. Yeah, that's nuts. And, and it's nuts because if something very close to the Nicene Creed is not true, right? if, if the okay. Nicene Creed isn't getting it right, then we are idolaters if we worship yeah. Jesus Christ. That's the real heart of the creed is that these folks were worshiping the man sitting at the right hand of God. Now, he's a man sitting at the right hand of God, right? That's in everybody's baptism. He sits at the right hand of God. Well, what are you doing when you worship this man? Or, or, or do you not worship him? Well, if you don't worship him, you're not a Christian. And if you do worship him, and you don't think he's really and truly God, then you're an idolater, right? So, yeah. You, so, so is the heart of it, and again, not to over-spiritualize or simplify it, is the heart of it, this is the great way to attack the doctrine is to say, you know, I told our church Sunday, I'm not a big spiritual warfare person because I think Satan always uses information when we talk about it. I believe in spiritual warfare, but I don't teach it from the pulpit. No, now, that no. said, we're living in a time where you almost have to say, let's talk about spiritual warfare. <laughs> but when you look at the attack of the core doctrine of yeah. the Trinity, much less salvation, this is false teaching. This is heresy. Yeah, it's a way for, for Christians to lose their way. And I don't know a whole lot about devils myself, but I know that they like lies. This I'm sure of, right? And one of their fundamental purposes is to lead us away from Christ. And so the crucial thing about the creed, it is the church's ancient witness to who Jesus Christ is. And you can learn so much by learning the creed. Okay, I'm interrupt you. Um, and I'm the reason you. one question, and we're going to go to we're going to Western history for a moment. The kenosis, the kenosis in Philippians. So he emptied himself and took on the form of. There's a whole. I mean, there's literature galore on what the kenosis is. What's Phil Carey's uh, 25 word? Help us out, Doc. He emptied himself of glory. He took the form of a bondservant. He says things like, I only do that which is pleasing to the Father. I only do my Father's will. Only the Father knows certain things. Thy will, not mine. Let this cup pass. Thy will, not mine. Is that kenosis or a mile wrong? Yeah, two things. Kenosis does not mean that God becomes less than God. It means that he takes up what is less than God and makes it his own. So he takes up mortal flesh that's going to die and suffer and says, that's my son. Right. So by taking up what is not his own, he re redeems what is not his own, our mortal flesh. And yes, by taking up what is not God, namely human flesh, he also becomes obedient by submitting his human will to his divine father. But in God, there's only one will. Right? In Jesus, there's two wills, a human will and a divine will. This is also in some of the later creeds. There's a human will and a divine will. He submits his human will to the divine will. But there's only one divine will. There's only one will in God, right? There's a Trinitarian action that begins with the Father and proceeds through the Son and is completed by the Holy Spirit. But it's always one action. It's not like, say, you know, Peter and James and John who might cooperate together 
you know, and agree, but they also might disagree. The Trinity will never disagree, right? They're never simply cooperating or obeying, right? My two sons might obey me, but they have different wills than I do, right? And they can disagree and they can dissipate. That cannot happen in the Trinity because it's one action, one power, and one will, and therefore that one helps. God. That helps. Okay. Huge transition, friends, because what I wanted to, well. Yeah, fast forward to yeah, the 18th let- century in the United States, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a lot of fast forward. We need a Back to the Future little promo here. Yeah, we're going to get in a DeLorean and go, yeah. you know, hundreds of years ahead of time. Let, let's uh, chat about this. So you and I talked about this through emails. Is America a Christian country? Was it founded by deists? Was it founded by Christians? Was it founded by a combination thereof? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, let, let's, yeah, let's ask that question. <laughs> Does America have a Christian founding? Right. And I think that the, the question of, of, well, what's the alternative to Christian? OK. Is kind of the interesting historical question. Right. And I think the alternative to Christian in the 18th century is different from the alternative to Christian in the 21st century in America. Right. In America today, we have lots of nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Yes. Right. Uh, who are some of them are spiritual, but not religious. If they say that, their spirituality might be Buddhist, you know, mindfulness and so on. But in the 18th century in America, the alternative to Orthodox Christianity was largely deism, right? There were maybe a few atheists, but they weren't speaking up very loudly, right? So far as I know, none of the American founders claimed to be atheists. If they were, they were keeping it quiet. Quite a number of them talked like deists, Jefferson, Franklin, John Adams was maybe a kind of, of liberal Calvinist. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy that. when you read his, yeah, yeah. Yeah, something like a Calvinist. George Washington was an Episcopalian who was um, on yeah. the vestry, which is like the board of trustees of the church, but he didn't take communion. So maybe he's a liberal Episcopalian, right? Now, so Low, low Episcopalian. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, or, you know, a lot like the liberal Episcopalians you have today where you think, oh, boy, this is really Christianity and water. Right? To use that wonderful so help, phrase so of help, C.S. Lewis. help folks that don't know this. This is a wonderful illustration, but you just jumped to a phrase they may not understand. Yeah. Christianity and water. Okay. Yeah, that's a phrase from C.S. Lewis that I love. And you can encounter it all the time, and I, I bet you most of your listeners have. When you go to a church, say a liberal Episcopalian church, right? You know, there's some Christian language. There's some Christian pageantry. Uh, they might even recite the creed. But when you get the sermon, you get, you know— well, it's Christianity, but boy, it's a lot, it's watered down, right? It's like taking the wine and turning it into water, right? Kind of the opposite of Jesus' miracle, <laughs> right? But that's easy. You can turn wine into water just by adding enough water until there's very, you know, very little wine left, right? So Christianity and water is a very common phenomenon, and almost all of us have encountered it, right? Watered down Christianity. Well, there was a ton of that in the 18th century in America, Right. There's not quite so much of it in the 21st century because there's no need for it, right? <laughs> We're already there. <laughs> yeah. If, if you don't like the church, if you don't like the Christian church, well, well, go study Buddhism, practice Buddhist meditation, right? You don't need Christianity and water. And, and this is why the liberal churches are kind of dying because they're so boring. But in the 18th century <laughs> – sorry. Well, I'm not sorry about that. It's true, right? <laughs> I love it. I may quote you on that one. I'm sorry I interrupted. Yeah. You're, 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 uh, hey, yeah, nice, okay. nice getting so, a yeah, laugh line. people you know. listening like me. So the, the, you, you talk about the alternatives. So, again, just because I make no uh, – I don't presume anything. 
when when these founding people left the UK, they're leaving because of a monarchy and a, a theocracy debate, correct? Uh, is the king God? Is God the king? How do you reconcile that? So in some right. sense, in Phil Carey's mind, there is a motivation to flee this, to come to the new America yeah. because they want religious freedom they want to start a new church tell us well yeah it's actually kind of complicated let's think yes. about the, the pilgrims and the puritans in new england which are rather different from the folks in yeah. virginia who are from the church of, of england right or they call it the king's church right the church of england is called the king's church because officially the king is the chief head on earth of the church of england that's the official title for the king of england at the time so, you know, Jesus is the head in, of the church in heaven, but the head of the church of England on earth is the king, right? It's the king's church. Now, the Puritans didn't like this, and the pilgrims didn't like this. So they were fleeing. They were fleeing a church that was also halfway towards being Roman Catholic. If you go to a high church, Episcopalian church, it, it looks a lot like a Roman Catholic church. The Puritans were called Puritans because they wanted a biblically pure church that didn't have... Um, you know, all the candles and the vestments and the kneeling and uh, a lot of this high church stuff. And they were, in fact, persecuted by the Church of England, uh, although a little bit later they, um, they started a rebellion in the Civil War and they cut off the king's head and, and they executed the Bishop of, of Canterbury. And so the, the Puritans won for a while, for about 20 years, and then, then it came back, right? So it's, it's a very contested thing. But it's all battling within Christianity, Right? The Puritans are one kind of Christian. The Church of England is another kind of Christian. And above all, the Church of England is what they call an established church, which is an enormously important term. Because in the U.S. Constitution, the very first clause in the very first amendment in the Bill of Rights is that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So like the very first thing that the founders wanted to make sure was protected was that we wouldn't have an established church like the Church of England, right? Because so many people in America had been fleeing from the established church, which did persecute people who didn't go to the established church. Here's the thing to, to bear in mind about this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment religion is how it goes. That's the U.S. Congress. One of the things to know is that the Puritans in Connecticut and Massachusetts and Vermont established an established church. Yet there was an established church in Connecticut, I think, until uh, 1818. Got my notes here in, in um, where was it in uh, in Massachusetts? I think it might have been until 1831. Right? An established mm -hmm. church, a state established, not not a national right, established right. church, right? So establishments of religion were a common common thing. The idea was that the secular monarch had a responsibility to care for the church. You know, this is a Christian society. This is a Christian country, right? And certainly with Connecticut and Massachusetts, they were Christian states. They regarded themselves as Christian states. They funded the ministers of the Congregational Church, which is the Puritan Church, using tax dollars, right? So this is a very Christian thing. And people like the Baptists hated it, right? Because if you're a Baptist, you're a Congregationalist in a really radical way, Right? Your congregation pays your minister, and then you have to pay the taxes of the state of Connecticut or Massachusetts, which pays the ministers of the so-called Congregational Church, which is the Puritan Church. So you're paying for two ministers. Right? Uh, and you say, wait a minute. 
I don't want to pay for other people's minister, right? So the Baptists were, were <laughs> anti-establishmentarians, right? By the way, did, when you were a kid, did you ever learn the word anti-disestablishmentarianism? Love that. Actually, I learned it in high school, but yeah. Yeah, right. Well, the disestablishmentarianism, the disestablishmentarianists were the Baptists, right? They wanted to disestablish the, the churches that were established in Connecticut and, and Massachusetts, but they were Christians, right? And they were fighting other Christians. But also notice what that ha- what that does. It slightly secularizes the political life of the community, right? In Connecticut, during the colonial period, you couldn't be a citizen of the colony of Connecticut unless you were a member in good standing of the congregational church. So your conversion made it possible like for you to become Right. And if you couldn't narrate your own conversion and become a church member, which, you know, you had to narrate your conversion in order to become a church member. If you couldn't do that, you couldn't become um, a representative of the House of, of Representatives in your state. Right. So, well, that's a little oppressive, isn't it? But it's, it's not secularizing and it's not anti-Christian. Did right? they did they unconsciously overcompensate? the UK? What they did is they made interesting political alliances. Like one of the most influential Baptists was a man named Isaac Bacchus. Bacchus was converted in the first great awakening. And uh, he thought it was, ended up deciding, you know, conversion is what makes you a Christian, not baptism. So we should postpone baptism until you're an an adult. And so he became a Baptist, right? It's fairly easy to start out as a Puritan like Jonathan Edwards and become a Baptist like Isaac Bacchus. The the gateway drug. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And so Isaac Bacchus spent much of the last, I think, 20 years of his life fighting for religious liberty, which means especially disestablishment. And guess who his great ally was down in Virginia? He had two great allies down in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, right? Because those two guys wanted to make sure that the Episcopal Church, which was the dominant church in Virginia, the King's okay, Church, help, didn't help control us again. We're jumping around a bit. We have the Continental so, Congress. Yep. And now give us a little time stamp for all of us. So we, we've got, uh-huh. and you've, you've already articulated, we've got Virginia, we've got you know Connecticut, we've got these different factions, and we've got the Puritans, we've got the Congregationalists, we haven't talked right. about some of the other branches that develop, but they're all kind of converging away from the reason they came to the states. And now you've jumped to Jefferson and Washington and others. And this is much further down the line, right? Well, um, I'm thinking, I I believe I've got, uh, now I'm not an American historian, but, and I'm, I'm a philosopher, so I'm I'm bad on dates, but I believe I'm talking about the um, 1780s. So this is pretty quick. Okay. All right. But that's an interesting point. If it's so quick, we've got this debate already hit the ground. We've just come to the country to have freedom of or freedom for religion, which we'll debate, uh, and now we're fighting about it. Yeah, right. And freedom of religion for most of these folks meant I don't have to support your church with my tax money. Here's Isaac Backus, a Baptist. He's a very serious Christian. He wants freedom for religion, but that includes the freedom to pay his own minister with his own money and not pay somebody else's minister, right? So freedom for religion means freedom from somebody else's religion, but notice, all the religion okay. we're talking about here is one stripe of Christian or another, right? Now, Jefferson almost certainly deserves the label deist, right? He was not really a churchgoer, unlike George Washington. And he's kind of famous for um, <laughs> evidently one evening in the White House, he's taking literally a, a razor and, and scissors and paste, and he's cutting out the parts of the New Testament where Jesus is teaching, 
and pasting them together and, and leaving out the parts where he's resurrected from the dead and doing miracles and he's the son of God. Jefferson just wants Jesus as a moral teacher. Well, that's as deist as you get, right? Jefferson is an admirer of Jesus, right? And while many deists, more than Jefferson, will actually claim the name Christian, right? The early deists in England in the 18th century, they said that they were better Christians than these people who have the doctrine of the Trinity and all that stuff, right? So all of this is some version of Christianity. Some of it is Christianity well, and water. And, and to push back a little on this, I read a book by uh, David Barton, which, you know, you have to sift through uh, people's presuppositions, but Barton argues that he was monotheistic, that he was God-fearing, and that he gets a little bit of a bad rap. He would I don't know if he'd go so far as to say revisionist, but the way you and I talking about deism, and I would categorize that as people that, back to your point, that we weren't talking Islam and Buddhism and Shintoism and Taoism. We were talking the Church of England and a new slate. Exactly. So when you're Boom, coming over here, them, they're not on the, on the again, radar screen. I'm yeah. just curious your thoughts on that because Jefferson gets a real bad rap in some respects, but he was a moralist. Oh, you bet he was. And he admired Jesus. And he and the Baptists were in, in an alliance with each other. Isaac Bacchus and the other Baptists really liked Jefferson, right? They didn't like his religion, but they liked his politics. And so there was an alliance between Jefferson and Bacchus because both of them were opposed to, strongly opposed to an established church, right? And none of these alliances, these, which are very political, make any sense except in a broadly Christian culture, right? An alliance like this, it's not going to happen in China or Japan, right? It's going to happen in a place where the only live options for the vast majority of the population are Christian or Christianity in water, right? There's a few congregations of Jews, just a few. If there's any Muslims, they're probably uh, African slaves, right? And no Buddhists, no Hindus, right? none of those folks, right? So nowadays, we have lots and lots of Buddhism in water, right? People who practice mindfulness but aren't really <laughs> Buddhists, right? But in those days, if you're going to take your religion and water it down, it's going to be Christianity and water, and it, which is going to look a whole lot like Jefferson, so, I think. So uh, it's a bit of a side sidebar. Stowe, Vermont. Many, many years ago, uh, a family vacation, I took my family to Stowe, Vermont, uh -huh. and I want to say it's the oldest congregational church in probably New England, but certainly in, in Vermont. And I was trying to find a, a quote I had uh -huh. pulled up somewhere. It escapes me. I, I'm not good with dates and times either. But that congregational church today is, uh, forgive me for people that love that church or you have attended there, you can't find God anywhere. Yeah. I mean, yep. you hear, we went and heard a wonderful chamber group. I mean, they were wonderful playing great Christian sacred music. And that was the, whole, that was the closest we got to the Bible or Christ. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It turns out lots of times if you want to hear the gospel, you got to listen to the, to the music. Yeah. Or the liturgy if they have any. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting history, right? you got the Puritans who escaped from England to escape the established church. Then they establish an established church in Connecticut. And there's a danger with established churches because then becoming a minister becomes a kind of careerism, right? If you want the, the, you want the cushiest job in a New England town, you want to be the minister, right? Really? Oh, yeah. First of all, you're going to be the most learned person in town. Well, that, yeah, I get that part, yeah. Right, so, so you're, you're the educated guy. Well, the schoolmaster, he might be a free thinker and you might fight with each other, but it's, it's a friendly fight. And you don't have to work hard with your hands for a living. Now, you have to make sure you don't offend your congregation, 
because then they might get mad at you and kick you out, which happened to Jonathan Edwards, because Jonathan Edwards had way too much integrity and preached too much of the, of, of the, the Christian faith. So you, you back off from you know, fire and brimstone or anything that might offend your congregation, and you make a habit of that. And the people who opposed Jonathan Edwards were, were very good at not offending people. They were the Unitarians. They were inventing this you know, new heresy, which say basically the Trinity is no good. And Unitarians were another form of Christianity and water. Really? Um, and they were mostly Congregationalist ministers. So it's not a surprise that, yeah, that there's no Christ to be he's found. He's a nice in, guy. Well, yeah. there's Christ. I mean, they, they like him. He, they think he's a great moral teacher. He's a good guy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Which is just ask the Pharisees. He's not a nice person. No. <laughs> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Nobody thinks they, they worshiped him as the son of God. They were terrified of him. They wanted to kill him, but they, nice guy? No, that, that's not the right category for Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I remember years ago preaching, uh, and I want to, say it was Luke. I can't remember, but I was one of the gospels. And from the moment of Jesus conception, not birth, there were two factions, worship him or kill him. Mm. And there's no middle ground. You want to go see this thing that's yep. come to yep. pass. We want to go worship this Messiah to be, or we're going to kill him. And I argue that hasn't changed today. There's no, he's not a nice we're person. Sure. He's either God and savior or not. So anyway, all right, let, let me jump way ahead, and I want to honor your time and our folks' attention spans. Okay. How do we get denominationally where we are? And, and, and let me ask it this way, because mm. you are a philosopher first, maybe? What were the trends, Doc, that started emerging to say this is where we started differentiating from these denominations? Because there had to be something, you know, it wasn't, they weren't arguing about the Trinity the way you and I are talking about it. They were arguing about ethics. They were arguing about law, about government involvement, yeah. about slavery, but they weren't mm. probably talking about theology like you and me, or am I wrong? Well, some of it was theological differences. Uh, some of it certainly was slavery, right? The, the churches divided north and south over okay. slavery. A lot of it was church government. So, you know, if you're an Episcopalian, you don't mind the, the state supporting the church. If you're a Congregationalist, you don't mind the state of Connecticut supporting your church. If you're a Baptist, you, you hate the idea of state support of the church. You find that as a form of oppression. So if you're a Presbyterian, you, you like the idea of presbyteries or synods, but not the idea of a national church structure so much. And interestingly, so if you're Baptist, your church governance is radically congregationalist, right? Small c, right? You're, you're not the congregationalist denomination, but your church is always an individual congregation. There's no such thing as a national Baptist church ever, right? The church is always a local congregation for Baptists, right? As opposed to the Church of England. There can't be such a thing as a Church of England. There's only local congregations. So when the Baptists get together, you know, they call it the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, Right? Uh, they don't call it Southern Baptist Church. That wouldn't make sense to Baptists. So the interesting question then is, what do you is this call... Is a setup for a joke? I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it is a joke because the name is... What you call them is a denomination, right? You give them a name. Denomination simply means name, right? So they have the same name, Baptist, right? They don't have the same church because, you know, everyone comes from a different local church. So that's where we get the very notion of a denomination, is, is from the Baptists, I think, right? You can't call them a church. The other thing that's important is the Baptists were one of the growth industries early on in the American Republic, right? In the you know, four or five decades after the, the American Revolution, the Baptists and the Methodists were the ones who were expanding onto the frontier. 
Because if you're a Baptist, all you need is two or three people, and you can found a church. You don't need a seminary. You need a Bible. You need someone who's willing to preach out of the Bible, and you just ask them to preach. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have a, a national organization. You don't have to have a bishop come, right? You don't have to have a committee of presbyters who do it, right? You can just found your own congregation. With Methodists, it's different, but it's because you have the circuit riders, preachers on horseback who go from from one town to town, and and and, and they're willing to you know, plant churches everywhere, and and. Basically, you have prayer meetings until the preacher can come and, and do a communion service, and then you have prayer meetings until they can you know, ride around and come back again. Uh, so those were the growth industries, and they were really denominations, not churches. Right? The Episcopal Church thinks of itself as a church. Presbyterians uh, as a denomination think of themselves as a church. Emphatically, the Roman Catholics think of themselves as a church. But Baptists are not a church. They're a denomination. You mentioned circuit riders, and of course, we're, I'm, I'm jumping around quite a bit. That's but, right. You know, as I understand Wesley's story, uh, he did not want to start a church. Mm. He did not want a denomination. He was very averse to the idea of a denomination, and the the phrase Methodism was a was a pejorative term. You Methodists, you study the Bible methodologically, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you you've abandoned creed. You've jettisoned these histories, and you know, for right or wrong. Uh, after he dies, the Methodist Church is born, right. and early on, we would consider them fairly conservative and orthodox. Correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, one of the issues there with with Wesley and the Methodists in England was this issue about the established church. So you've got a circuit rider. You know, these Methodists—they're they're riding on their horses uh, all over the place, preaching in the open fields, and the parish priests of the Church of England would often think, "Wait a minute, you're invading my parish. You're preaching your." theology to my parishioners, you know, and you're supposed to have some kind of license for that, I think, right? And Wesley was constantly in tension with the local clergy because he's invading their their, their territory. He's, it's turf war, right? And Wesley wanted to stay part of the Church of England. He wanted to be part of the established church, but he wasn't going to be settling down and becoming a parish priest. And that tension is something he wanted to keep in tension and not have it fall apart. But it fell apart, right. and then Methodists became a denomination, kind of inevitably when, in the When United you look States. back on the, these first two, three, four decades of the country, um, were the seeds already sown for this, you know, let's just say, uh, shift to liberalism? Because we, we are, if I'm understanding your argument, and, and, and correct me and clarify, we're, we're talking about government influence. We're talking about overreaction, well, a reaction to a monarchy that's telling what you can and can't do, a state religion, which I think is hard for contemporary Christians to understand this concept that, that there was a state religion, and uh, the closest thing they might know would be China. Oh, there's a state religion in China. We don't understand yeah. that in our freewheeling, uh, you know, independent individualism in America, correct? But in, in these first three, four, five decades, or are the seeds sown, my question, that this is already happening in your in your view? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I think there's two different fields of force happening. One is that there's a lot of religious competition, right? Your Baptists are preaching, Methodists are preaching, Episcopalians are doing the liturgy, they're not exactly preaching, but you know, and, and they're competing for in the religious marketplace. Now that actually strengthens them. Right? It, it, the Baptists really do well, and the Methodists do very well in this religious marketplace. But that means that the government has the task of sort of keeping a distance and not well, eventually disestablishing all the churches in, in all the, the states, Massachusetts included, 
And so the government ends up becoming, trying to be neutral, which means trying to be secular, which means it com- becomes a great place for people who don't have strong religious commitments. If you have really strong religious commitments, you're going to be drawn into becoming a pastor, not becoming a legislator, right? So the, the government and certain other organization in society become more and more secularized. Most newspapers, right? Unless, unless it's a Baptist newspaper, lots of Baptist newspapers, but there's lots of secular newspapers. And most politicians, right? The politicians, it doesn't do a politician much good to be identified with one denomination or another, right? And strong religious convictions, like if you're Catholic or Methodist, will get you identified with one group or another. If you're a politician, you don't want that. So you've got a, an incentive to be broadly secular, broadly Christian, right? Civic religion, you know, Christianity and water is great for that kind of politician, right? Most of them are, you know, some kind of Christian sort of, right? But not very strong Christians, right? And so there's that dynamic as well. And I think we got both of those dynamics, which explain a whole lot of what goes on in America. We start fighting over these things. This isn't just yeah. a civil discourse. This becomes, you know. Well, yeah, you're threatening each other with hell often. Yeah. That's that's a serious problem when you do that. Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our time is precious and, and running down quickly. Let's talk about two things. Let's talk about slavery mm. and let's talk about where we are today. Slavery becomes a watershed. And right now in the our Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, you perhaps like me are seeing a lot of misinformation, a lot of inaccurate historical viewpoints, yeah. you know, congealed together to make an argument that's vitriolic, that, yeah. that is, you know, it's a, it's a fire. Let's go watch it burn. There's mm-hmm. so much going on. And one of my concerns for Christians is understand, look, if it wasn't for Wilberforce and it wasn't for Whitfield and some of these white guys, yeah. Where would we be with slavery? And then talk to me about the church at that time, because we do have slave owners. Yeah, sure do. There's certainly the argument to make some of them were indentured, they were in debt, and African Americans were not free from having slaves either. We don't like to talk about that part of our history. But this becomes a huge issue, not just for the country and what will become the Civil War, but within the churches. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, the church has split over it. Yeah, in New England... The second or third generation of people downstream from Jonathan Edwards were vociferous opponents of slavery. The abolitionist movement took its root in New England with people like uh, Samuel Hopkins and uh, Lyman Beecher and then William Lloyd Garrison. And they used very vitriolic theological language uh, in favor of abolition. But of course, there were Southern theologians defending slavery. So there are Christians on both sides for sure. I think the problem is that in order for the union to stay together, from the get-go, you had to make compromises about slavery, which means compromises between white people that throw black people under the bus, right? If you wanted Virginia to be part of the United States of America in the Constitutional Congress in 19, sorry, 1787, you're going to have to allow slavery. You can't have a constitution that abolishes slavery and expect Virginia and, and the other southern states to be part of the United States. So slavery was built into our Constitution from the beginning as a compromise. The New Englanders didn't like it. John Adams didn't like it. Thomas Jefferson depended on slaves for his income. Um, He would have been bankrupt without it, of course. So we have that compromise from the very beginning. And we also have vitriolic opposition to slavery from the very beginning and theological defenses of slavery from the very beginning. And that's our heritage. 
and it's much too complex to be reduced to you know to talking points. Um, right. But I'm I'm inclined to agree with the people who think that of slavery as our as our original sin as America, right? You know, it, it has dogged us, and it and boy, it cost a lot of lives in Civil War. Yeah. Agreed, one hundred percent. But to say that without saying it was also what got us to the point today where and slavery is not abolished completely in any country in the world, but America and England have done more to free all people. And I would argue, I could be wrong, will be the first time today, is it wasn't for Christians in these positions, mm. we would have never gotten to where we are today. Yeah. Oh, yes. I think there's an intrinsic dynamic in Christianity towards freeing slaves. And, and it takes a lot to, to dig in your heels and resist it. And, the, and, you know, Southern theologians were willing to do that, but it didn't convince many people. Here's another way of putting it. I, I once heard someone say, you know, how could Jefferson be such a hypocrite, right? Writing the Declaration of Independence saying all men are created equal and then having so many slaves. But you could think of it the other way. How did it ever happen that a slave owner whose whole economic existence depended on owning slaves was capable of writing the Declaration of Independence? I think it's because of... Christianity and water, which has enough Christianity left in it to say all men are created equal, which is a fundamentally Christian idea, right? So even Christianity and water has its good points, right? I think it gave us the Declaration of Independence. I think it absolutely gave us the, the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln's second inaugural, which is one of the most magnificent pieces of political speech ever. Yes, um, in our imposed. country, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, right? These are all things that are just unimaginable without Christianity. They wouldn't come from Buddhism or Hinduism. And agreeing with you about the idea of America's original sin is slavery, how far we've come, sure we haven't conquered all racism. I'm of the belief that because sin nature being is so deeply ensconced in us, we're never going to. There will always be, I mean, I've traveled around the world. I'm sure you have two or places uh, in Africa and India, the, the caste system, slavery. I mean, even within Africa, which is the most ironic part of this, there's people that are indentured and abused and mistreated. So it's not a uniquely American Southern sin, so to speak. Now, I got to make a real hard turn because uh, I want to get your, give me Dr. Carey's diagnosis and prognosis on where the church is headed in our country. And I, I mean that, and, and, wow. well, come on, this is your worldview. Come on. Okay. <laughs> That's right. what you do for a living, Phil. Uh, <laughs> because Christians, and let me set it up this way. They go to churches today that are either all Black Lives Matter, they're drinking mm. CRT, or they don't want to talk about it at all, or they're segregated, or they hate each other, or fill in the blank. You, you come on, you know this stuff. So, oh yeah, what are we to do, and and how do we help the person that loves her husband, his wife, that he loves his kids, he loves his church, loves his community, he wants to follow Jesus, and he sees all this going around, and we go, what in the world do we tell them about their history and why they need to believe X today? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, this is a problem because I have friends in Washington and, you know, there's Republican churches and Democratic churches and, and there's like nothing in between. And there's something deeply wrong about this. We need to be worshiping the same Lord, knowing that when we worship the same Lord, we have brothers and sisters that we may not like. We have, you know, in, in the first century, it was Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, right? And there's lots of tension 
And if you sort of go back to First Corinthians 13, you know, that, that we recited at weddings and things, which is nice, but it, it's really about how do you live in the same community with people who rub you the wrong way? Right? People that you don't see eye to eye with, you're from different social classes, you don't understand each other, but you have one Lord. Right? And so it, I do think it is ultimately a matter of faith. Right? Are we willing to admit that our Lord has, has children giving us brothers and sisters who are people that we don't like and disagree with? And you know, I have a really good friend whose political judgments I think are just disastrous, but he's my good friend and he's a good Christian. And he's got really bad political judgment, right? There's lots of people like that. I have good friends. I, I know nice people who are gays and lesbians. I think they're really, really mistaken about what it is to be human, right? But they're nice people. Some of them go to church, you know? And, and, so, and some of them worship the same Lord that I do, right? And I wish they were called to repentance, but they do worship the same Lord, right? So we have all these imperfect sinful brothers and sisters, and boy, oh boy, don't try to take the, 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 the speck out of your brother's eye without noticing you have a log in your own, right? So we're all here with, our, with these logs in our eyes. We have one Lord, and we better hear the gospel. And if we are worshiping the one Lord, we can make some progress with each other. But if we think that our politics are the crucial thing, the thing that, that de determines everything, and we have to win the political battle or else everything is lost, then we're idolaters, right? We don't have to win the political battle. Jesus is Lord. I just finished teaching through Second Peter and Jude, and when you read those books, I, I have this axe to grind. We're never making the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. And when I read Second Peter yeah. and when I read Jude, these are hard words. And, and these words, uh, to go back to your earliest comment about government and who controls the church, Render to Caesar in one, in one sense. You come to First to Second Peter and Jude. Uh, you rebuke these false teachers. You have nothing to do with them. They're inside. You must understand the apostolic authority of the church. If you don't understand them, you can't even be a Christian. In First John one, he's saying you have to have fellowship with us to have fellowship yep. with the Father. Yep. Meaning the corpus of the teaching in the New Testament about Christ was given to those men to tell us about if you reject them you're rejecting christ it's not just idolatry you're not even in the in the ballpark so if i jump over to uh, life or over to the definition of lbgtqai plus or whatever mm -hmm. i'm scratching my head set policy aside for a moment how can i say something that i know is biblically it, it's in, indisputable and yet yeah back to your point so well I, we can't we can't do that the government takes us we, you know i mean is, is it not the same oh i think that the issue about who jesus is is the crucial agreed issue. is jesus lord right and then there's the question of really church discipline right what do you do about people who are really confused and messed yeah. up about well their sex lives right there's the corinthian correspondence as well you know, as you know, this, right? And if the church is functioning well, you have some kind of church discipline that can deal with this. Right now, <laughs> because of the automobile, as Carl Truman put it, because of the automobile, church discipline is virtually impossible, right? If you say you're kicked out of the church because of this bad behavior, well, then they just drive to the next church down the road. So, and, and that's that makes a real problem when it comes to you know men abusing their wives. All the above. Like, all that's the above. Yeah. All the above. So I think what we have to do at the present is start with what is really bottom line, 
which is the, the creed, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then recognize that there's deep disagreements about politics, you know, I think, you know, these disastrous political judgments. And then in the middle are, I think, convictions about what it is to be human that I think really are essential to the gospel, right? God created us male and female. That has consequences that are really fundamental and which there's going to be a lot of political pressure in the next few decades probably to say, nah, nah, male and female, there's, that's only two options out of, you know, quite a, you know, a dozen or so, right? And there's going to be enforcement of that. Uh, exactly how far that enforcement will go, uh, who knows, right? Let's put it this way. One thing that gays and lesbians can complain about fairly enough is that there was a time when they were persecuted and Christians sometimes led the persecution, all right? On the other hand, you know, Christians who, who don't believe in things like same-sex marriage, we're the ones going to get persecuted before long, right? Maybe not as badly, but, you know, for instance, some like who believes what I believe is never is not going to be able to get a job at a, at a major American research university in the next generation or two. Uh, I possible. would say now, not even next generation. I would say if it's, if it's an American university with uh, the policies that we've been cooking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Yep. I was, I was being cautiously phrased in that, but, but Sorry. No, you're right. I'm black and white right. too many times. Right. Yeah. But, but there you go. But I try to smile when I say yeah. it, you know, but yeah. So, so we're going to have to think about how, well, here's one way to put it. I was just thinking about this. When I hear a man talk about his husband, I wince. Right. And I think you don't know what marriage is, right? You're from a really strange tribe. Right. Because, you know, there's lots of tribes where, where you know, men can have more than one wife and women can have more than one husband. Maybe there's tribes where men can have husbands. Weird tribes. They're not my tribe. Right. But oddly enough, they live next door to me. Uh, some of them are my students. Some of them go to church. You know, so th these tribes, they're, they're in tension with each other. And right now, my tribe is becoming a minority tribe or at least it's losing power. Right? We might actually be a majority of persons but we're a minority in terms of, and if of I social can inject, power. We're afraid yeah. and we don't know our history yeah. well enough to speak kindly and clearly about these things. To speak both kindly and clearly. That's the, that's the task. And it's not easy. Right. But the other thing is some of the members of these other tribes are nice people. Right. You know, I, no yeah, doubt. No right? doubt. No. And, and a lot of Christians are not nice people. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, it's, it, I, I don't say it aloud, but I'm saying it aloud. <laughs> I, sometimes I'd rather deal with non-believers than Christians. It's just, you know, it's just so fascinating. But we're, we're talking. We just remember how gays were denounced by some of the TV preachers in the 70s and 80s. I, can, I could name some TV preachers. You know who they are. I won't bother naming them. But they were nasty. They were really nasty, right? Now, nowadays, most gays and lesbians don't have that memory in their past, yeah. right? And they're gearing up to use the federal machinery to um, exclude people like you and me. Well, it was Justice Stevens, I think, in the Obergefell decision who said, this is not about same-sex marriage. This is about religious freedom. And the test uh. case is going to be, not bake the cake, the test case is going to be when they knock on your church pastor's door or my door and they say, you know, we love this church. We've been here for so long. Uh, we would love you to officiate our wedding. Mm, and yeah. it won't be a tolerant discussion. It'll be a lawsuit. It'll be a lawsuit. Yeah. And in, in Canada, uh, oh. certain kinds of preaching can be labeled as a hate crime. And that's, you know, that kind of label is really radioactive. 
Right. So the, the politics that are coming down the pike are going to be nasty. Well, and this is where I try to encourage our, our folks to say, listen, you, I'm not voting for a person. I'm voting for policies. Yeah. Yep. You, you talked about disastrous ideologies. I, my, my point is, you no, know, uh, there's disastrous people in political office on both sides of the of the red and blue line. There's a few so-called libertarians and independents. They're not really, but they call themselves that because they want to. At the end of the day, you're voting for a policy. Yeah. And if yeah. I have a politician who says to you or me, I want to protect the church. I want the church to have religious freedom. I want you to be able to teach the Bible and not be hate speech. And you can choose who you officiate a wedding and who you don't. You think that's in our future as a church? Oh, I, I'm not enough of a prognosticator. To, what's your, to what's not... your gut and your view of history tell you? Oh, my gut tells me that Christianity is going to become a minority religion that we need to learn to adjust to what Tim Dalrymple calls becoming the church remnant rather than the church regnant, right? That for those of us in the East Coast or the West Coast, we know what it's like to be now you're, a minority you're kind of already culture. already there, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're in the South or the Midwest, you can still kind of pretend that the respectable thing is to be a Christian. But in my part of the world, uh, it being anything like an Orthodox Christian is really not respectable. And that's, I think, likely to spread in the United States. Uh, we're likely to become like Europe. And the question is uh, how far this will go, because this is going to be a political tussle and there's going to be a lot of back and forth and exactly where the boundary line will fall, how far the pressure will go. We don't know. I think we can't tell at this point. You know, you can imagine someone like President Biden, who is a Catholic, who's pro-abortion, right, which is very un-Catholic. But maybe he, someone like him doesn't really want to um, sort of make the Catholic Church's view of things illegal, make it illegal for Catholic physicians to refuse to perform abortions. Maybe, right? Maybe he has enough respect for what the church teaches that he won't try to violate the conscience of conservative Catholics. I don't know. And maybe the next president will not be as restrained. Well, I feel like we're back to England. I feel like we're back where we started. Mm -hmm. Well, you could say there is a kind of established religion. It's more or less, I would call it the religion of consumerism, where I have to choose who I'm going to be and what my sex will be and what my gender will be. And, and, and that anything that infringes upon that total freedom of choice is a form of oppression and a form of hate. Yep. Uh, yep. Right? Yep. And that's, um, that is really a religion that is much more intolerant than it gives itself credit for. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it, it moved from tolerance to fascism, in my opinion, to the true definition of fascism. We're, we're, we're seeing anarchy now in some places, whether it's burning down buildings and offices and police stations with no government influence. And when that goes to the next level, then we're going to bring in the government to, okay, this is this bridge too far, and now we have what? Totalitarianism. So it, it seems the cycle is set. I'm a pessimist by nature, and I hope I'm wrong. Someone told me years ago, it's better to be a pessimist because if something good happens, you have a real reason to rejoice. <laughs> Dr. Philip Carey, I would talk to you all afternoon, but you have things to do, as do I. Dr. Philip Carey is a professor at Eastern University, and you can find out more about him in our show notes. And you do need to go to the great courses or the great teaching company, whatever the, the name de jour is, and buy everything Phil Carey has done and put it in your car and listen when you drive because it's a lot better than the news. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again and i hope you'll come back again and uh i gotta get you down to middle tennessee where you know it's it's okay to be a christian right now 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.